You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here with an author chat with Ray Xu about his debut graphic novel, Alterations, um, a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story uh, for middle-grade readers. As always, Books and Boba is listener-supported um, on Patreon at patreon.com slash booksandboba. Um, so head on over if you want to join our community. Um, Patreon supporters get access to the Books and Boba members-exclusive Discord server, where you can talk to us in real time, as well as bonus podcasts every month. So um, definitely appreciate everyone's already joined. And if you want to support Books and Boba, um, head on over. Uh, but yeah, we had a great conversation with Ray, uh, who was calling in from Toronto, uh, my I guess not technically my hometown. My my city of birth is more accurate. Yeah, yeah, your city of birth. Um, yeah, I'm really glad that we're having like more Asian diaspora uh, graphic novelists and graphic memoir uh, writers, especially in like the young adult slash middle grade genre. Because I feel like, um, you know, like people say that graphic novels, comics aren't real books, but they are. Kids gravitate towards that and they like devour it within hours. So if this is a way for them to, you know, consume more books uh, to really like flex their empathy muscles and I'm all for it. So yeah, love a good graphic novel. Wish I had more growing up is what I'm Yeah, that's say. true. Our, our life like... Our life as middle middle school kids were like reading mangas and <laughs> yeah. maybe like uh, like Marvel comics or DC comics. We didn't have that many choices then. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was definitely reading uh, my Dragon Ball and uh, what was I reading? I was reading Yu Yu Hakusho actually as a kid. Yeah, too. Yu Yu Hakusho. Yeah. yeah, Shonen Shonen Jump. <laughs> a lot of like pirated mangas for sure. Um, but yeah, we had a great conversation with Ray uh, about his graphic novel, as well as his background as a story artist for animation. Um, he worked on a lot of great movies. Um, most recently, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which was one of my favorite films of last year. Um, kind of cool to hear his story and how he got started and how that led to his graphic novel. Yeah, the book takes place in the 90s. And because all three of us were 90s kids, uh, we got to reminisce a little bit about, you know, uh, growing up in... Asian culture back then, which, you know, was very different. <laughs> yeah, we had a great chat, so please enjoy our conversation with Ray Shu. And we are here with Ray Shu, a Toronto-based story artist and animator. His recent works include the 2021 Netflix animated hit, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, DreamWorks Captain Underpants movie, and more. And we are here to talk about his newest work, Alterations, his debut graphic novel. Welcome to the show, Ray. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here. Books and Boba. I should preface, I'm a I'm not an animator. I'm a terrible animator, but I am oh. <laughs> like, I've been a story artist for like the past 15 plus years. And um, yeah, I know. I know that was a dated intro. My bad. <laughs> no, no. No I, one um, like, I didn't know what I was supposed to say. I don't know. No one told me it was what I was supposed to provide, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Excited. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So like 
go go just jumping right into that like can you tell us like how you got into the business of uh being a star- story artist like were you always interested in art from a young age yeah absolutely i uh i was that awkward little asian kid you know just drawing and doodling all the time and i knew i was never going to be good at math i was terrible at math <laughs> you know like i tried academically i did i tried to appease my asian ancestors for sure but drawing was my thing from a young age and um you know, as, as I got into high school, well, what really started was like, I, I watched and people, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this of like for posterity, for the, for the internets forever. But like, I watched the Lion King as a kid, like my mom took me to see it. This is like, like the animated 1994, like, you know, I don't know if you guys know that one. It's yeah. Classic, I mean, don't even, but... we're all just as old as you. So we, we, we're okay, all there. I was going <laughs> to. I, I mean, also, I also like movies theaters to see in with theaters. my mom as well. So, <laughs> Listen, it's, it's like I, one of the classics. Like, of course, like I, I mean, we're not going to make fun of you for that, <laughs> dude. You'd be surprised. So, listen, I was just in Cincinnati at Winter Institute, and like, you know, obviously, book, it's like Gen Z. You know what I mean? Like, and then I remember there was another occasion. I said The Lion King. Uh, I believe I was at a school visit actually. Um, and they're like, "Oh, we love that!" Or like the live action version. <gasps> because they remade it, remember? So when I no! said that, they, they oh my god, it's into lifeless. That. I didn't watch that. That's one. what I'm saying. <laughs> like, not cool, man. And anyway, but I watched that, and you know, I don't know, something clicked. I was like, I want to work in animation. I thought I was going to be an animator, but then, so fast forward high school, I had to come up with a portfolio, and the only school to go for an- for animation around Toronto was Sheridan. And Sheridan College was known for its animation program. And so I applied. Luckily, I had enough to get in. And when I got in, it was just like the four years of just like learning what, it, you know, all the practice, the principles of animation and like being surrounded by talented artists. And upon graduation, you know, I thought I was going to be an animator. It turned out I sucked in animation. Like I was so bad, but I had good drawing skill. You know, I think I always did. I think I always enjoyed it more also. I just didn't know, you know, you're what? Like your early 20s, you graduate, you, you don't have a sense of identity. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And so I was looking around and for a job and I had a couple of peers that were story artists and got in the story and I was like, that looks cool. And then we had a studio at the time in Toronto that was starting up and it was headed by this guy, Ricardo Curtis, who worked on The Incredibles as a story artist. Like he famously storyboarded like Frozone and all that stuff, like those scenes. And um, I just remember hearing that. And I'm like, I want to be there. And everybody wanted to go there. And it was this, it was a dedicated creative pre-production house. So it's like story, art, design, all that stuff. So eventually I got in there. And from there, that led to my first gig in feature, which is Blue Sky. And, and I worked on Epic and Ice Age Continental Drift. And pretty much from there on, I, you know, that brought me here. Like, I've since then, I've worked on, I know you mentioned more recent ones, like Mitchell's vs. Machines. Um, oh, like Teenage Mutant, uh, Ninja yeah. Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. That was one of my favorite films from last year. Like, that was just, how cool is yeah. that to work on that? Like, because if we're about the same age, that means we probably both watched like the, the after school cartoon back in the day, right? hundred percent. 1987 <laughs> version, like best intro opening sequence ever. Yeah. I mean, classic man. Uh, when I was, um, sometimes in this industry is like luck timing and like 
I happened to meet the director of TMNT, Mutant Mayhem, while I was on Mitchell's versus Machines. And he was like, hey, come help me out. I was like, sure, man. I'm like, I'll be more than happy to. It's like a childhood dream. <laughs> so I got to work on that. And um, tons, of, tons of television and film stuff. And then uh, I guess, you know, during this period of time, I was... So as a story artist, I should say that... Uh, do you, are you guys familiar with what we do or what story artists do? Yeah, like, pretty much. But you can, you can explain it for our listeners in case. Yeah, for our yeah. listeners who, who don't know. Basically, we take a script and we turn it into images, right? But uh, on top of that, you know, we, we look out for story. We try to help the story, push it along, make it better, and spot any potential problems. And um, to do that, we have to do many versions. And, um, it's almost, and it's like always sequential. So... It was very, um, it's just fun and like, it could be exhausting, frustrating at times because sometimes you just do many iterations of the same scene and it's just maybe like, I just didn't have it, you know, it can, it's like get a craft and break the story almost. And, um, so doing that, I'm, I'm always used to, you know, helping shape and mold stories I'm like i'm almost like a facilitator you know like i the director tasked me with a scene and then i go ahead and try my best to come back with something that um hopefully that is good and and pluses what's the script what's in the script and then what the director likes and hopefully production likes it. and so yeah i spent a lot of my career doing that and then it just never occurred that i would you know do my own thing just yeah so like how what made you want to do a graphic novel i i guess this is sort of like a graphic memoir as well because it's semi-autobiographical so um just like what was your inspirations for it yeah I, i'd say it's like loosely inspired but because you know obviously i mean you guys read the book there's no underwater roller coaster come on guys it's <laughs> not i wish that sounds awesome, i wish though. i i wish i could get a roller coaster design but uh no all joking aside um there was like a lot of things happening peripherally. So I think alteration started ultimately as these drawings like of like, like little slice of life, um, you know, vignettes into my childhood, my family growing up as a kid of immigrants. And uh, um, adjacent to that is like my mom passed away when in my late twenties. Oh, no, sorry. She got really sick and then eventually passed away, which motivated me to do to do these um almost like mini tributes to her in a way and these little you know like saturday morning school like a cooking rolling dumplings was like and um i also had a kid at the time and was growing up was getting into books and we'd be going to our local bookshop and you know you look in the you look in the shelf and i i just started to notice that there weren't many um, Asian, like lead main characters in books. Um, so I was just thinking maybe it'd be kind of cool, you know, for my kid to have books that they could potentially see themselves in. Right. Makes sense. A little, (laughs) (laughs) so, but I took, so I took this collection of, um, drawings and I put together a proposal and, so initially it didn't start as a graphic novel. I actually, Netflix, I was working for Netflix animation at the time and they had an open submission. I applied like 
in the round. Like I didn't even tell anybody. I just applied. Like I was doing it because I didn't want it to earn it the right way, you know. Very Asian, very Asian. Yeah. Um, don't cause trouble, you know. Um, but uh, I did. I applied and um, you know got some good feedback. Ultimately, it was turned down. But because of that, I was able to meet my literary agent. Uh, his name's Albert Lee UTA, and he's just like I later found out he's pretty badass and like so he really championed. Uh, the story and you know then we paired up with union square and then that's that saw potential in it as a graphic novel and that's essentially how you know we kind of got here yeah like what what was it like um your experience writing a manuscript from beginning to end because in your day job you're used to bringing other people's stories and scripts to life but um for this project, you had to like come up with everything on your own. Uh, so like, what was your experience drafting and um, putting all of these vignettes together into one linear story? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I've never written a manuscript before. And so, and so <laughs> I, I owe that a lot to uh, uh, my editor at the time, the person who acquired the project. Her name is Tracy Keevan. And she's, we'd had weekly just meetings on like, what I wrote that week or how it's going and then review and edit each batch. And then, so that manuscript process took a year and it was, it was a very big learning process for me. I've read scripts before, like obviously like hundreds of pages of scripts, writing your own is like completely different experience. I was very humbled. And I should also mention at the time, like the show eventually did, sorry, not show, but the idea got picked up a cartoon network to develop. So I was also learning how to write a screenplay. Right now it's in like development weird weird land because Discovery Warner merged and Cartoon Network got shut down. And so there's I don't know what happens there. Um, but back to the uh, graphic novel or the manuscript rather. So yeah, I did that, and the year was a huge learning experience, and it was it was good. I think it like pushed me as an artist, and I, I think I grew a bit also as a writer. I wouldn't say I'm like a pro writer, but like, you know. I mean, you're a pro. You have a book published. I think that's the most professional <laughs> you can go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're writing that manuscript and putting the story together, like as an artist, what comes first? Like, do the visuals come first, the story comes first, or is it the, the script that comes first? Like, how? Like, are how, you storyboarding it the entire time, or do you actually like write uh, like an outline or write a script on your own and then do thumbnails. So this is where my editor came in just advised me to start just write. And when I say it was challenging, that's why it was terrifying for me. Cause I actually just, you know, opened up the laptop and just had word open and just, and then also had a, on top of that, I had to have a notebook and I got really comfortable with that. Like I, I kind of almost, felt romantic at some point because it was peak pandemic. So you couldn't really go anywhere. There was no cafe for me to go to. I'd be on my porch and just have a coffee. It'll be like, maybe it's a nice day outside. And I just type away in the morning before I start work. And uh, yeah, I'll write some notes and I'll self-edit. And yeah, the process was, I don't know if I have a technique or a process rather. I just tried to visualize everything on, on with words. So I had to train myself because I'm typically using, used to, writing with drawings. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we've had other um, Asian American uh, graphic novelists on the show. We've had uh, Tan Pham, the author of Family Style, and um, his his graphic memoir, like 
it started as like an Instagram thing where he would like post a comic a day and then it like got compiled into a book. And uh, there's Hungry Ghost by Victoria Ying, who, you know, she's like a Disney animator. And for her process, it was mostly like storyboarding. So it's really interesting that you like dove straight into writing. Like I, it, it does sound very terrifying. <laughs> it was uh, honestly, I, it was the best piece of advice uh, I think I got. I like one of the, during the beginning stages of uh, making this graphic novel, I think maybe my editor clocked in on the fact that I was used to just drawing and thumbnailing and I could, you know, you could get lost in the, like, the thumbnailing process, right? Writing is very structured because you start, you know, page one, page two, page three, and like, you know that you have to keep pushing forward somehow, like, and write it out and like have your ideas on the page, so to speak. Whereas, you know, you could thumbnail something and then I'll be like, oh, that was a cool idea. And then you could just ruin that timeline. Like, you know, that's it. You branch <laughs> off. It's like a, a, the multiverse of whatever development. But um, it was good. It was good in that sense because if manuscript was fully done, and then I started thumbnailing. Only then. So it allowed me to also add a better idea of where the story was going. So when I was making changes, because things always change off the page, right? When it comes to drawing stuff. Maybe not so much the dialogue, but like the way the circuit, the, the composition, stuff like that. So it was cool because I think the thumbnail on stage flowed much better than if I had just tinkered with it per panel and just wrote some notes on the side. So yeah, I think uh, it really helped when it came to roughing. Yeah, well, you know, it worked out because now you have a published book with New Square Kids, um, Alterations, that's um, out. Um, can you... Give our listeners a quick synopsis of what your graphic novel is about. Yeah, it's um, it's loosely based on my you know upbringing as a Canadian Chinese boy. I was raised by my single mom. I lived with my sister and grandma, and I took that and I, it tells the story of Kevin, basically Kevin Lee, who's a Chinese boy who also feels invisible at home and also at school, but ultimately he longs to like stand out, and eventually the story gains the courage to. And that's, and like, I just wanted to highlight, you know, as a kid of an immigrant, immigrants, there's that life you have at home. I don't know if you guys can relate. Your parents, you know, can't really communicate to you in English. And then you go out and you try to like, you try to adapt to like this Western culture. And I always found that there was a lot of things lost in translation and sometimes funny situations also. Yeah, yeah, I have a, um, so like one of my favorite scenes in your book is when Popo, the grandmother, uh, tells Kevin about how his mother almost swam to Hong Kong and was jailed mm. uh, for trying to escape the mainland. And um, it just really struck a chord with me because so often for children of immigrants, our parents' history, their stories are just shrouded in myth and mystery. Like they do not talk about their past at all. And, um, and because of like how mental health is you know, kind of a taboo in in Asian culture. Like back then, I I know now it's like changed quite a bit. Like they're not really encouraged to share their past trauma because they just want to forget about it and they don't want to bring that burden onto their kids. Uh, so how has writing about your family history, even though it, it was loosely inspired by your family history, uh, taught you about your family while writing this book? Oh man, that's a great question like 
my mom, that story. So when she got sick, so she had a really massive stroke. So my sister and I were very worried about her memory and losing it. And we made a practice of like asking her questions about her history and a lot of diagnostic ones. Where are you? What'd you do? Stuff like that. But then eventually bled into like, you know, Hey, what was was it like? And then as a kid or what did you like doing in the past? And meanwhile, my uncle who she's closest with told us this story that they both attempted to like, they trained you know, every day. And back then that was post-cultural evolution. They didn't have like much schooling, education and stuff like that. Right. So they had a lot of time to like plot and they knew they had to get a better chance and opportunity in life. And so when he told us the story, my sister and I were like, what? Mm -hmm. Like we heard through the legend and the lore, like this is a common theme. I think like you sort of said it perfectly when like, they don't say nothing. You just hear snippets at conversations at family gatherings. Maybe one aunt says something. One uncle's like, oh, yeah, it was very tough back then. And then, so this was very like an eye-opening experience to hear him talk about the fact that they did attempt to do that, except my uncle made it and she didn't. You know what I mean? So that's like interesting because then you get into this area of like there's a shame associated with that. Even though she eventually, everything worked out, she eventually came in, but it, like there was so much like, just like trauma that she experienced up until that point. And, and, you know, my sister was born in China first and I was born in Toronto when they came here in 84. And like, all I knew was this version of my mom, which was like the working, the, you know, always quiet. It doesn't say much, just outbursts of like frustration and like, you know, sometimes the shaming of like, you should have done this better and stuff like that. And so as I'm like grappling with all this and then I'm writing this book, trying to revisit certain areas of my childhood, I was like simultaneously sad because my mom's longer here, but also I had this like, newfound respect that I wish I was able to uh, show her if she was still around and she had opened up, but overall sense of like gratitude, I guess, for all the quiet suffering that our parents tend to go through just so that, you know, we could do what we want to do. Yeah. I mean, there's like, you could do a whole three hour podcast. Just like, <laughs> well, well, now you have that story for your kid to read. So that family <laughs> history is not lost. It, 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 so that's crazy that, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Sure. If how you do you guys are, are you guys very traditional sense, sense like, you know, like you guys light an incense for your, your ancestors. You, <laughs> During April, it's Qingming. You guys will visit the funeral, like the, the cemetery. Also. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about Rira, but for me, like, you know, both Rira and I are both um, second generation, 1.5 generation. So our parents were the immigrants. Um, I guess, Rira, you're technically also I'm I'm immigrant. pretty much your sister, <laughs> yeah. by the way, because <laughs> I am the eldest I'm the eldest child. I'm the only daughter. My youngest brother is 17 years younger than me. So like, Whoa. so like when I was reading your book, I was like, oh my God, I want to <laughs> ask him about like, like, did he talk to his sister about his teen, uh, about her teen struggles and angst? But we can get back to that later. But yeah. <laughs> no, let, let's, no, I, okay. I'm glad you brought that up too. Cause my sister and I in real life, we're 12 years apart. Like imagine a full Zodiac cycle of like, Oh yeah, you guys are the same Zodiac. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, um, and she also had that, you know, she speaks perfect Cantonese and Mandarin and she's the, like, 
super intelligent. She won the finance and she's, you know, great. I'm the creative <laughs> child, the art child, right? Maybe, I don't know if that's a product of growing up Western society or in Canada, but in any case, it's funny because you meant, when you mentioned that, like, it made me think of my own sister. Like, we, our relationship is not, um, I don't know, like what the TV movie world would, like, I, I never hung out. She was more my guardian, right? Growing up. And yeah. I don't know if you felt the same way. Like she took me to movies. She, you know, like was responsible for me. And like, she taught me how to drive stuff like that. Like she would, um, <laughs> take me out to events, like older events and like give me music to listen to or like stuff like that. Yeah. And like, but yeah. not like we wouldn't didn't crack a beer open and like <laughs> wrestle or anything like it wasn't like that. And like, you know, we only start hugging recently. Like it was like, you know what I mean? Like he was like, yeah, I feel like when you're that much older than your younger sibling, you kind of become like a surrogate parent. Right. I feel like that's what I've seen with friends who also are, are in that situation. I'm a year and a half older than my younger brother. So we're much closer in age, which meant we still fought a lot, but it's all different things. Like, cause we're both trying to do the same things. All the time. Yeah, like yeah. you wanted the, the Super Nintendo controller <laughs> when he was hawking or like you want to watch this instead of that. Like, but for me, my sister and I were like, well, who's gonna, are you gonna go do this for mom? Or, and then, but you know, luckily for me, she did handle all that because she was more, she was older, she was like more capable, like in that area, you know. But I'm sure it came with a lot of pressures too, because she is older and because she yeah. speaks the language like uh fluently. It's like you're she grew up being your family's like translator and kind of like yeah. guide while she's trying to figure out her own adolescence. So how did that conversation go when you were like, did you talk to her before you were writing uh the book and you were like, Hey, I need some input so I could have like the scene where uh, like the siblings in my book, they have like a moment where they kind of implode. So can you tell me a yeah. little bit about your experience? Yeah, we did talk about, I mean, so we, we did share a room and she told me later as part of this whole thing, she's like, I hated sharing with you. And like, she also, she also literally told me like, I didn't even know mom was pregnant until she came home with you one day. Cause my mom was, you know, notoriously thin and worked all the time. I guess there's not a lot of you know, time to sit around, but like, Oh, you're having a baby. Let's prep for you. And like, you know what I mean? And I shared a room like, with my like teenage older sister and I'm this young kid and I was still probably peeing my bread bed or whatnot. And like, it was like, she didn't want that. Right. Imagine, I don't know if you guys have kids or not, but I can't imagine the situation where my kids who are now eight and four and they grow up and I suddenly force them at like 16 and 11 to share a room together and like a tight room. And then there's no privacy. There's no like sense of like identity because you don't have any independence. And it's just, and you're trying to build that. She's at the time where she's trying to get, you know, getting into high school, into university. And I'm like, just a little idiot because I don't know what I'm doing. And then, uh, but yeah, no, we talked about that particular instance and we talked about uh, you know, like how difficult it was because you're right. She was, she had to translate a lot, like, you know, doctor's notes and financial documents, stuff like that. Right. 
And that's a burden. I mean, I didn't have to do that. And I, you know, I, I'm so grateful that she is my sister because she, she does a lot of things and I still look to her for advice when it comes to things like this. And I ask her, you know, like if I'm buying a house, what should I do? Like, is this like, is this a good time? Like stuff like that. Like, so I I, I imagine it must've been frustrating for her. Like, but now as we're older, I think, um, I appreciate more of what she was able to do. Yeah. I mean, you have like in your book, you have strong female characters, like, Kevin is surrounded by these strong women. And uh, even though it's very clear that they've like made sacrifices for the most part, they don't complain. They just kind of like shoulder on that responsibility and just like carry on. Um, Did writing this graphic novel, like quote unquote, alter your perspective on any like childhood experiences or like uh, your perspective on um, the women in your family? Um, I don't know if it, like, I think I had a deep, uh, like respect and, uh, for, for their, I don't know. I think it's like, it's this quiet burden that they just carry. I, and also as, I think as Asian women, it's just, it's like, we're pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Like, so like I was saying, my mom, you know, my mom and dad divorced and I admit, I think I'm like nine or 10, maybe younger than that. I mean, they were obviously having issues before that. I just didn't, you know, we could talk about all these situations. Like my dad uh, just wasn't around after that. And so it was left to, which is why my sister was important because not only was she's the translator, but she was my guardian often like helped me with like, I have to think about high school, like where to go or like where to go for college or like, uh, oh, can I borrow your car? Stuff like that. Like, you know, and then my mom obviously was just kind of like the quiet, but like just working like her, her, her love language was like, I'm going to work and, you know, act of service. Yeah. Act of services and just, uh, hopefully they respect me, but her, her, her internal like thoughts or like like goals always change. She always moved the goalpost, you know, like, Oh, uh, we'll wait till Ray graduates. And then, you know, I'll start working less and then, Oh, I'll wait till, you know, he has a kid or wait till your kid grows older. And it's just like, then I'll start taking care of myself, stuff like that. And I don't know if you guys find it. Sure. Like, can you guys relate in the sense, like your parents in that sense? Are they just, that's their identities. Like if they, I I think that is the case for a lot of um, immigrant parents overall. They really want to have like a better life for their kids because they came from um, they came from war or they came from like like a a lower financial uh, background and they came to America or Canada to make a better life. And for them, it's just like work, 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 work. And um, somehow it will pay off in the end but of course that has like its own problems because your kids are not just going to follow whatever uh plan you came up with it's like we're not we're not robots like we have our own feelings and we have our own talents and our own uh passions so um yeah i think 
I, I, I think it is a re- very relatable thing of just like, okay, I understand that my parents are making these sacrifices, uh, but like at the same time, like I want to be a kid. I want to have normal childhood things, but sometimes those things are not. Um, so sometimes those things are privileges that we don't get as immigrant kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like going to a movie, like taking time off work. What a, you know, vacation. I was surprised happening. by the the field trip in your book because I'm like, oh man, there's so many immigrant kids I know who were like not allowed to go on school trips because uh, their parents are just like, what do you mean you're going to like an amusement park or you're going to like a different city for like like overnight without me there? Like, is it safe? Are you like, I can't trust your teachers to like look after you. So, I mean, in your book, it's like clearly the teacher couldn't look after (laughs) Kevin because things happen. That's interesting because my parents were totally down for me going on the trip with like my class. Like we went to amusement parks, aquariums. There was always like one field trip every year um, when I was elementary school. I mean, my parents were pretty cool with it too. But like, I'm just saying that I had friends who who's like immigrant parents are just like, nah, you're coming straight home. You're helping me with my, uh, with the family store, like no time to play. You're not learning anything on these trips. So really, no, I, I think it was more of an opportunity for them to be like, okay, well, school's taking care of them. Great. Done. Go. I need to do my thing and work, which is quite understandable as a parent of two kids. Now I understand, but see, that's just the thing where like they, they were just so dedicated and committed to this idea of like, I need to work and do all this. And like, so, you know, I respect my mom a lot. It's unfortunate because yes, she didn't really take care of herself till later in life. And she passed earlier than most of my friend's parents. And I'm now seeing my friend's parents starting to relax more, you know, Mm -hmm. Asian parents relax more. And I'm, and I always think, I'm pretty sure mom would have arrived here because near the end, she was like getting into photography and taking trips like on these photographic trips. Like I have, we unearthed like photos of her going to like China and like taking photos and stuff. It was great to see that um, because maybe because I, you know, I graduated from school, got a job and then I got married and then, you know, was building a life and she felt it was okay to start treating herself and whatnot. I never asked for much either, but like there is definitely an alternate timeline where that maybe she would have proven us all wrong. And like, it was all worth it. But I think this is also a lesson itself. And I have to remind myself like, no, life doesn't work like that. I mean, with a lot of parents, uh, they make being a parent, their identity for so, so long. And, Mm. you know, like as kids, we forget that they had identities before they had us and uh, after we're grown up it's just like yeah like what now i mean you're still a parent but like we're not like we don't have to be watched 24 7 so uh what do you do now and i feel like with um with every like every age for like every milestone for us like you have to kind of like relearn how to be a new person like you have to like keep Mm. altering yourself so um, Mm, I thought the title of your book was pretty uh pretty fitting um but so so in your book like Kevin he gets teased at school for bringing a century egg 
to lunch. <laughs> and um, yeah. we call this like a classic lunchbox moment in um, like Asian diaspora yeah. uh, culture. Did you ever have a lunchbox moment? Did you ever get teased for um, bringing Asian things to to school? All the time, man. Especially, especially it was like a pork and chive dumpling. And you know what happens like chives while it's kept in a container for hours. And these were back in the day before these like fancy thermoses. Now you uncork that. And it's like this to a non-Asian person is like, Whoa, it smells like it's just musky, like weird oniony garlic kind of smell. And like, that'll be unsettling. And, you know, I've, I mean, that's all I knew, right? Like I, I craved the bologna and cheese sandwich, but like never really got it. And fast forward to now, I make my kids like Western sandwiches, like, you know, <laughs> cheese and that's easier. <laughs> like ham. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely like, I'm sure have you, have you guys like, I didn't I mean, even ask your backgrounds. Like you like, I mean, Marvin, like you're, you grew up in SGV surrounded by other Asians. Oh, I'm my mom made me that- sandwiches. So. I, oh like, really? Like Western sandwiches? Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Oh man. See, you're the Asian kid at school where I'd be like, damn, your mom made sandwiches. They put, they, know, bought like, I- ice, they bought iceberg lettuce. Like what? Yeah. My mom would over toast the bread. So they would always cut up the roof of my mouth. But dude, that's, yeah. That's crazy. Oh my God. Like when my mom did like pack me lunch uh, after a certain while, she was like, oh, your school provides lunch. So I don't have to like make it for you. But like back when she still like made me lunch, it was like stuff you can buy at the Korean grocery store. So like kimbap and like Korean bread yeah. and like yogurtu, like yogurt drinks. And I never got teased for it. It was like the, the white kids in my class were like, oh, what is that? Can I try some? And I, I think it's because they didn't have like a very strong odor. Like it wasn't like garlicky. It wasn't kimchi. I'm not bringing kimchi yeah, to school. Yeah, you didn't bring kimchi <laughs> and like imagine I'm not bringing back, century like, egg to, to school. I, I have a little bit more foresight than that. But yeah, like I feel like kids nowadays, like it's just it's so they have it so much easier. Like Asian culture is kind of like seen as vogue, like especially Asian food. It's like the cool thing to to eat. So it's like they they don't even question you eating dumplings because it's like we know what dumplings are. It's 2024. (laughs) Yeah. Not only that, like if you want to talk about in vogue foods, like the Korean kid brings like this bento box of like you know there's a little seed weed here some rice and like some like preserved veg or whatever meat and they just build and like they eat like that's incredible i'm all for it man in fact i hate making sandwiches dude i really do i I, I might like i'd rather fry rice to be honest my kids i mean you you could fry rice i mean that's that's what I, I did do. for I my do. brother. Yeah, I was just like, you're, you're getting Asian food at school because you're a picky eater and you're not eating any yeah. of these white people food. So I guess this is what I'm going to make you. So. Uh, Asian, honestly, it's so heartwarming to see. So I was in Cincinnati for Winter Institute. I, I did see there's like a lot of prominent Asian authors. And even in graphic, well, you mentioned Tian Fam. And like, we don't know each other. I follow them, obviously. And like, I'm a big fan work and they're doing great stuff everywhere and you know not just 
in books, but like in movies, like just the past year, one of the best movies I thought was like past lives, you know, and like what a nuanced story about like love and, you know, time and like stuff like that. And, um, and before that, everything everywhere at once. So there's like, there's definitely a moment happening. And I just, whether it fizzles or it keeps going, I just am glad that there's still contributions. Like, you know, every year I think there's more stories featuring Asians. Yeah. Like, um, like you have movies like turning red for, for kids now. And it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're seeing uh, Asian experiences in kids media more and more in mainstream. And that's good because it heals uh, the adult immigrant children and this new generation gets to kind of like uh, skip that generational trauma. They get to like see it happen on screen and uh, learn more about their culture. So that's always really nice. Um, do you yeah. think that, uh, th- I mean, this is just like my last question. Um, your sure. book is set in like the 1990s, obviously, because it's loosely based on your own life. How do you think Kevin's identity and his journey would have been different if it was set in the 2020s. It probably would have been handled differently. I mean, like social media is just a different beast, uh, which adds to like this whole, like imagine Kevin being bullied online and we'd have that like whole discussion. I don't know. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think it would be slightly less difficult. I don't know. I'm just, it's it's true. Like there was not like Asian culture wasn't um, in vogue. Like you were saying, you know, characters were often, you know, if you popular culture, there were just villains or like, you know, exotic cre- creatures and stuff like that. So I think that plays a large part in how we're viewed in, in society. And I think, you know, the idea of fitting in and finding your identity is is like a theme that's kind of timeless. I think like everybody suffers that more so maybe probably in today because you can get kind of lost in, in today's culture where I think a lot of kids are more isolated now because there's no, um, they don't play a lot anymore and they don't like take risks and go out there and like, you know, meeting people via online versus in person, you know, it's very different. Yeah. I think it's just, it's hard to answer that question. I think that it's just going to be different. I don't know if it'd be bad or good though. Um, I feel like every generation has their own struggles. And I think now it's more about curation. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, like there's like this whole thing on uh TikTok and like, it, it, it on and on Instagram it's just like okay you need to like brand yourself and it's like if you don't understand mm. who you are it's very hard to brand yourself so a lot of times you just find a template and I know that there was like this whole trend on TikTok recently with um with uh like oh like what kind of Asian are you are you a cool Asian are you like a yeah. SoCal Asian and it's just like what does that mean like how like why how did this become a subculture within Asian culture so yeah, it, it's like it a sub subculture. Like it's so, it's even it's it's it's, it's so nuanced that doesn't. Traits. <laughs> like okay, when we were growing up, yeah, sure, there was like that. There's a bit of difference. Like there's the you would meet the Asian, the second generation Asian, the one that was like parents that were born there, and then they had 
them. So they grew up with a fully like Canadian identity, like understanding what that meant. And that to me was like, whoa, what is that? So your parents don't work in restaurants and drive and like aren't seamstress and do service jobs. Like they have like legit like careers, quote unquote. You know what I mean? That would shake, shake me. But nowadays I'm assuming there's like, like you were saying, that would make it very hard. Like if Kevin, the story was told today, yeah, you'd probably have to touch upon that, that there's so many like, like tribes out there and trying to like identify themselves. And it makes it hard to navigate. I actually don't even know how I do it. I I'm kind of scared for our kids to like, you know, when they experience that in their lives, I'm just hoping they're able to overcome it. That's part of this book too, is like, yeah, you, you run into a lot of these situations throughout life, not just as a kid, but as an adult too. You kind of have to just kind of learn from it and you don't get bogged down, burdened with those feelings of like feeling inadequate, questioning yourself. Um, something I work on every day, I guess. Yeah. Before we go, I have to ask, um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's always interesting when, um, especially for me, reading middle grade novels or mm-hmm. watching, you know, shows starring middle grade kids as an adult um, and just thinking back on how like, you know, the kids would call it cringe, right? Like when you're a kid, mm-hmm. everything's the most important thing to you, but you care about the dumbest things sometimes, right? Or the things that like don't really like, you don't, you can't see the big picture. And, you know, like we mentioned, your main character, Kevin, is surrounded by strong women who are sacrificing for for him, but he can't see it. Um, mm-hmm. How was it to like go back and get into the mindset of like a, a 12, 13 year old um, and writing a kid that, to be honest, for me, I was like, this kid is such a brat, right? But um, mm-hmm. it's just true. Like, that's just how kids are. That's what they, their, their worldview is just so, so narrow at that point. Exactly. I felt, I felt like a total tool. Like, <laughs> why didn't I say the right things at certain times? Or why didn't I do that instead of doing this? Yeah, like, especially it's harder to even, like I was saying, my mom's passed away. So I just, it's not like I can make it up to her anymore. Maybe sometime and some universe where my ancestors are <laughs> somewhere, but like, it's true. I, I, I came away with it with a deep appreciation, even deeper. Like even my wife, she's just, she's an RN and like, which meant that during the pandemic, she was on site and working away and like contributing. <laughs> Whereas I'm here thinking I'm doing a badass drawing comics and like, making cartoons right i always have to like detach myself like you know there's people do important shit around me and like especially the women that i've decided to surround myself with i just have to be so grateful for that that i was had that opportunity to see that and continue to in some cases right like my sister my wife i just gotta sit with it man and just appreciate that there's always going to be these like opportunities where I can learn from. And I was a brat then. Hopefully I'm a less one now <laughs> as, as a 40 year old. Yeah. I don't know. I definitely have find um, that like as an adult, I find myself when reading these middle grade books relating to the parents more than the kid. I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's a hard thing is like, I can't pretend like I'm 12 year old, but nor can I as a, 12 year old in the nineties. Like that was a long time ago, pre-internet, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, 
the kids who are going to be the, reading your book are going to be like, why, <laughs> like, why doesn't, uh, why don't they have, I don't know, like Nintendo Switches or like, why don't they have cell phones? Oh no, they're going to be down like, with the, they're going to be down with the aesthetics, man. Nineties, nineties aesthetics, early two thousands. Those are totally in right now. No, hey, it's, I was gonna it's say, going to twenty tens right now. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully a year or two left. But I was going to say, while I'm making this book, I started seeing nineties culture just come back, like. It just happened overnight. Like I just started seeing why are the pants getting wider? Why are like you know what I mean? Like yeah. the aesthetic, certain mu- and you've if you listen to music recently, it's like just rehashes of old songs. Just, yeah, you know, but like by current artists. I'm like, what's going on? And but again, maybe you're right. It's like now it's moving in 2010s. I mean, I was so. at the mall the other day. Boot cut is back. Um, my wife won't yeah, allow me cut. to um, bring back my baggy pants, but I'm pretty sure I could oh, no. still pull them off. I'm seeing girls wearing Uggs, but it's like platform Uggs, and they wear their pants over them. And I'm like, dude, back back in quote unquote back in my day, Uggs were yeah. flat. You had to tuck your boots into the Uggs, and they actually kept you warm. These were snow boots. They were not like fashion <laughs> items, but uh, yeah, it's That's been interesting awesome. to see how. Our past comes to haunt us <laughs> through the new it's generation. <laughs> and maybe that's, uh, yeah, it's a good roundabout answer to, to your question, uh, Marvin, about like, <laughs> it is, right? It does come back to haunt us some ways. Yeah. So, well, it's a time. real fun book um, out now, Alterations. Um, how has the reception been? And how, you know, I, I know you've, you know, you've been doing some events. Um, how How's it? How does it feel to have like a book, a physical book out in the world that, that you wrote? And it's like hardcover uh, too. So it's like a yes, real yeah. book. <laughs> the hardcover, I have to admit, is pretty nice. They did like a really great job with the whole production of it. Like I'm very happy. It's it's very surreal to see it in the wild. Um, I know that during pub week, my family and I uh, noticed that it was at a local bookshop. So we immediately went and it's just to see the reaction of my wife, my kids' faces was just totally gratifying, worth it. Um, like I was saying, I was just in Cincinnati for the Winter Institute because Alterations was chosen as an Indies Introduce, which I'm starting to, I've been told it's like a bit of a big deal. And look, I'm not like an established author by any means. So I'm really learning the game and the business and how it's run and such. And so I, I, I think so far the reception reception's been okay. Like I was approached by a lot of booksellers and and like I was saying earlier before we, you know, popped on the podcast, like, yeah, I, I do seek out like the Asian booksellers. I'm like, whoa, you know, there's and they recognize it's almost like I don't have to say anything. And they're like, Hey man, like it's great that you're doing stories like this. And so I'm just I'm really grateful that doesn't you, you don't have to be Asian or nothing, but it's just like if you champion this story, it means in some ways you're championing like diverse voices. And hopefully that means that if they are able to put it in the kid, the hands of a kid who's um, struggling to see himself and maybe by reading this book, they'll be able to see something that they can relate to and it'll alter how they feel about themselves. So, yeah. We'll, well, congratulations on your debut. Um, probably too soon to ask, but are you working on anything? Are you working on publishing anything else? Are you um, back to back to the movie and, and TV grind? 
I'm in the movie grind. I'm actually about to help out on the, the sequel. So yeah. Oh, we'll see to, to mute me. And, um, but no, I, I'd love to keep creating, man. I just, I don't know. No one's come knocking. So maybe that's a good sign <laughs> that the book's not resonating as well as I, I'm hoping. So we'll see. I don't know. I'm listen, if I do this and this is all I do, it's all bonus, man. You know, I, I've done it. I did it. Uh, but I know myself, I'm an artist and there's always going to be that like internal fire to like create something. So I hope someday. Yeah. And maybe I'll be back here talking about it. Hopefully. Yeah. We'd love to have you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for joining us on Book Symbolba. Thank you. I love the name. Thank you for having me. <laughs> really appreciate it. And that was Ray Xu, the artist and author of Alterations, um, available now at booksellers everywhere, um, including, as always, the Book Symbol Web Bookshop. Um, if you go to booksymbol.com and check out our online bookstore, um, any purchase you make there supports the Book Symbol Web podcast as well as your local bookstore. So definitely appreciate everyone who's ever bought a book from our bookshop for your support. And this is a great book to get the little ones in your family. Um, I definitely had a lot of fun reading it. And congratulations to Ray for writing such a such a fun sometimes cringy um graphic memoir so for the month of february what are we reading martin we are reading untethered sky which is a novella by fonda lee um it is a story about a girl who goes on a monster hunt with her giant bird companion um really excited to get into this book um like i mentioned fonda lee is one of my favorite authors so really excited to get into this book with you all um as always if you've already finished the book and it's a pretty you know it's a pretty it's a novella so it should should go by pretty quickly um if you have thoughts about the book and want to give some feedback um, please let us know on either our goodreads forums or our discord server if you're a patreon supporter um we'd love to include your thoughts on our discussion podcast at the end of the month um, but yeah, with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you once again to Ray Shu for joining us, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Remen. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who 
are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Thank you.